We've all had times when we wished a story would end, times that the story had just gotten longer and longer, and we, we just want to say, please make it stop, right? We've, we've all been in those conversations. Often in those conversations, people will say, long story short, and, and, and by that they mean they're going to cut out some of the details of the rest of the story and get right to the conclusion um, I, I find in my own personal experience that rarely happens, that the long story is still long, even though they say long story short. As a matter of fact, this is just uh, my unscientific uh, assessment is when somebody says long story short, it's already too late, right? It's just, it's already too, it's already a long story. Um, but we say that, and uh, part of the problem, I think, with the phrase long story short is it's the teller of the story that is deciding what, a, what constitutes a short story, right? The, the teller decides how long or short it's going to be, and maybe, this is a bit of a movement that I'm going to start, uh, maybe the hearer should get to decide that. Like if you have a story and you think it's a great story, but you, you want it to be a short story, maybe you should ask the hearer, what would you consider a short story? How long would it take? And if they say 37 seconds, you've got 37 seconds. Right, go. If we could just all agree to that, maybe start a petition, get it online. Maybe, maybe that's how people would start handling long and short stories is, is if the hearer got to determine whether it was a long story or a short story. Uh, th there is one time that most of us in here have tried to make a long story short or a short story even shorter and that's if you're a parent and you've ever read bedtime stories to your kids, right? And let's just all be honest. You have skipped pages before, multiple pages, all at one time. The end, good night, daddy loves you. And, and you get to my age and, and you would love to have one more story time with your kids at the age of my kids. That would be really weird. But still, it'd, just, it'd be great to have one more story time uh, with your kid, but when you're in it, and there's no judgment here, by the way, if you're in the middle of it, when you're in it and you have young kids, you are exhausted and you just want to get in bed, and so you make a short story really, really short so that you can go to bed, and I totally understand that. You do not have to feel guilty about that at all. Now, when it comes to short stories, real short stories, they're difficult to tell. There aren't many people who are good at telling short stories because in a compressed amount of time, you have to set up characters and conflict and storyline, and then you have to resolve it all within just a couple of pages. There aren't very many really good short story Tellers, one of the best is from right here in Georgia, Flannery O'Connor. Any Flannery O'Connor fans? Great short story writer uh, when she was alive. And so if you, don't, if you have never read Flannery O'Connor, you should read some of her short stories because she's really, really good at it. Another person that was really, really good at it was Jesus. Of course, he was really, really good at everything. But he was really good at telling short stories. But, but more than just short stories... They were packed with truth and eternal principles. So they were, in a sense, a short story that had a lot of principles and a lot of application and a lot of eternal truths to teach. And so that's why we're calling this series Short Story Long. Jesus told really short stories, but often, and maybe this has happened to you, 
Uh, have you ever read a story or gone to a movie, read a book, and you didn't want it to end? And for weeks afterwards, you're still thinking about it, either in a, in a not so good or in a great way, it sort of haunts you because you keep thinking about the ending or the characters or the story. It just stays with you. That was the kind of story that Jesus told. Because often after he had finished telling the story, his disciples were still talking about it. They're still trying to figure it out. And sometimes they would go to Jesus and say, can you help us with this story? Because we're not sure what it means. It just lingered in that way. It was a short story long. Now, we call the short stories of Jesus parables. That's the, the church word for it. Uh, parables because they're short stories with an eternal truth that Jesus is trying to tell us. And I, I thought it might be a good idea just to give some general principles of parables and how they work and how they don't work before we jump into the parables that we're going to study today. Here's the first idea. The parables are made-up stories. Maybe that's really obvious, but I want to make sure we all understand. These are fictional stories, totally made up, totally made up characters, totally made up situations. Jesus sometimes talked about real people. He gave examples of real people, but when he tells a parable, he's telling a story that he has totally made up. And so sometimes we have to be cautious with parables about how much we read into the story because it's not a real story. The characters don't have any other background than what Jesus has made up in the story. Another principle of parables. The parables invite us into the story. They're not just to be read. We're to enter into them because Jesus is asking for us to respond. The parables that we're going to read in just a minute begin with this phrase. Suppose a man. Right? Suppose a person did this. Suppose you were that person. What would you have done? Would you have responded this way? Jesus wants you and, and me, when we read these stories, to insert ourselves. Now, often there are multiple characters in the parables. And sometimes the point of the parable is to ask, which one do you most identify with? Which one is you? Where do you find yourself? Honestly assess your life and your perspective and, and your emotions. Where do you fit into this story? I, I was reading a, an article this week by Russell Moore on the benefits of reading fiction. And here's the line that stood out to me. Almost everyone is the hero in his or her own personal narrative. When we think about ourselves, for the most part, we picture ourselves as the hero or as the person that's right or as the person that's noble. In our own personal narrative, we see ourselves as the hero. Donald Miller used to say a lot that for a long time, he viewed his life as a movie that was all about him. And everybody else were just character actors in the movie about him. And it was his position. Most of us view life that way. We think of our life as a movie about us. And everybody else is just a character actor. We often put ourselves at the center of stories. When it comes to parables and short stories that Jesus tells, we're not going to be the center of the story. We're not going to be the hero of the story. That part is almost always already taken. We're going to be some other part of the story. Another thought about parables. 
The parables ask us to feel emotions about specific situations. In, at first reading or first hearing, the parables aren't given to us to dissect. They aren't given to us to form a list of principles. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. These are the ten principles. Initial hearing of a parable, you're supposed to feel something. Do I feel angry? Do I feel relieved? Do I feel conflict? Am I mad at somebody in the story? Am I uncomfortable about something in the story? The parables are given to us in some ways as a way to bypass our logical thinking, as a way to say, look, don't view this as four lessons. Enter into the story to see how you feel about the story, how you feel about the characters. Then once you've done that, we can start looking at one, two, three, four, and, and here are the principles. But at its heart, the stories are given to us so that we would feel something and then start to identify, why do I feel that? Is that the correct emotion? Last thing, the parables teach one overarching truth, but can have several subpoints. In general, when Jesus tells a short story, there is one big idea that he's going for. And sometimes there are some smaller ideas underneath it. We have to avoid reading the parables like we would read an allegory where everything is symbolic. Not everything is symbolic in the parables. And you can overanalyze the parables fairly easily and fairly quickly. Jesus typically is trying to give us one big idea. And then out of that one big idea, some different applications or some different points. Um, the parables are not given to us in order to be a complete systematic theology, right? We need other parts of the Bible to help inform the parables. Usually there's a specific situation, a specific conflict that Jesus is having, and so he tells a story to try to get everybody on the same page. We're going to jump into some of Jesus' most famous short stories. They're found in Luke chapter 15. That's over in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, which starts Matthew, Mark, and then Luke is the third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 15, Jesus doesn't tell one parable. He tells a trilogy of short stories, three short stories back to back. But we need to know what made Jesus tell these stories? What was the context? What was going on that caused Jesus to launch into these stories? We find that out beginning in Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So, that's the situation. Tax collectors, when the, when the Bible uses tax collectors, it's, it doesn't just mean accountants it doesn't just mean workers for the IRS, um, and maybe you've heard this before. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were referencing Jewish people who were working for the Roman government to collect taxes for the Romans, sometimes exorbitant taxes, sometimes huge penalties, sometimes overtaxing their own people to finance the work of the Roman government, which was the enemy if you were a Jewish person. So tax collectors were despised by the people. This is part of the group that's always following Jesus around. The other part of the group is described here as sinners. And that means 
sinners. That's what that means. And the people, the religious leaders, didn't like either group. They didn't like the tax collectors. They didn't like the sinners because they felt like they weren't sinners and they did everything right and they obeyed all of the law. But this group of people was drawn to Jesus. The outcast, the people who didn't have their lives together, the people who didn't have everything figured out, they were constantly drawn to Jesus and Jesus was constantly making time for them making time for conversation, making time to have dinner together, making time to hang out. And this bothered the religious leaders. Verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. you got sinners and tax collectors in the crowd. You've got the religious leaders who don't like it, but they're not just going to say that. They're not going to just come out and tell Jesus how they really feel. They're like a lot of people. They're not going to go straight on with conflict. They're not going to say, hey, I've got a question. The Bible says they muttered. They just whispered among themselves, which is so often what happens, isn't it, when people have conflict, when people have disagreements. There's not a sit down, hey, can we talk about this? There's more just the muttering the back and forth. Now, unfortunately for the religious leaders, Jesus had really good hearing, and he could tell exactly what they were saying and exactly what was bothering them, so he addresses it not by calling them out, not by pinpointing the problem. He addresses it by telling stories, and this is the first story in verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Have you ever lost anything? Keys, wallet, phone, pet, your mind, anything, any, anything that you lost and could find, you knew it should be in that spot and it wasn't in that spot. And the feeling that you have, especially if it's something valuable or something you use a lot, the feeling that you have that I have to find this and I have to find it now and I have to look everywhere and I know I put it there because I always put it in that drawer. I always leave it on that table. And so a few minutes in, you begin to blame your spouse and you begin to blame your kids for who moved your thing. And then however much time it takes, you eventually find it right where you left it last time. Yeah, lost things create anxiety. They, they create this rush to, I've got to find it, I've got to find it right now. And Jesus says, suppose there was a shepherd, had 99 sheep, but one of them was lost. That shepherd would then go find the one sheep, even though he had 99, he would go find the one and would when he found it, would put it on his shoulders and would walk it back to the rest of the sheep. And then he would throw a big party. He would invite all of his friends and all of his neighbors. And they would have this huge celebration. Because even though he had 99, one was lost and the loss was found and was brought back. And maybe there's some exaggeration there. I mean, that's what you do sometimes in stories. Jesus sometimes exaggerates his stories. Maybe that's what's happening here. 
Maybe they wouldn't throw a big party. Maybe the people listening to the story were thinking, great story. I love that the sheep was found. I'm not sure I would have thrown a big party, but I would have been really, really happy. It would have been a great thing. And Jesus says, throwing a party is what heaven does when one lost sheep is found. This is what happens in the presence of angels when God finds someone who is lost and that person comes back. Suppose you had a hundred sheep, one of them was lost, and you found it. Imagine what you would feel. And before they have time to respond, before they have time to react, Jesus starts the second story because the first story is really a setup. The second story starts like this. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Anybody have a change jar at your house? A bowl, a bucket, a something you throw loose change in? Or maybe in your car? A uh, little drawer on the side, you start filling up with change, and then you take out all the quarters and the dimes because they're valuable, and pretty soon it's just spilling over with pennies. I have that drawer in my car, and pennies go everywhere because when do you actually use pennies? They just collect and collect and collect, and then you have them all over the place, and you don't ever really want to use them. That is not the type of coin that this woman had. She had ten coins, and the coins were worth... A day's wage. So you do the math, whatever that is for you. A day's wage is what this coin represented to her. She had ten of them. She lost one of them, so it's not a penny. It's not a small amount. It's not an exorbitant amount, maybe, either. It's not a million dollars. Your day's pay is probably not a million dollars. If it is, I'm open to being adopted anytime that you would like to add to your family. Her loss is somewhere in the middle. But it was important to her. It was valuable to her. It was a day's wage. And so she lights a lamp. She looks all over the house. She moves the furniture. She looks under things. She searches and sweeps and cleans up and pulls up the rugs and looks everywhere until she finds it. And she's so overjoyed She calls her friends and her neighbors to her house and throws a huge party to celebrate. The one lost coin has been found. Again, maybe a bit of an exaggeration. Maybe no one would really do that, but everybody in the audience seemed to enjoy the story. They liked the story, and then Jesus said, this is what happens in heaven when one lost person comes back home. When one lost person is found And is brought back to the family of God. And everybody must have thought, great story. Love the story. Lose a sheep, find it. Lose a coin, find it. Wonderful, but Jesus doesn't even take a breath. And no one has time to react before he starts story number three. Because story number two was also a setup for story number three. Which starts, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property 
between them. Now, the first two stories lacked much emotional connection. A shepherd loses one sheep out of a hundred. A woman loses one coin out of ten. We're happy that they found them. But there's no real emotional tension in story number one and story number two. We're three sentences into story number three, and there's already tension. Because everybody in Jesus' audience has decided already how they feel about the Son and probably decided how they feel about the Father. You see, it was not unheard of, but considered unwise and in some ways disrespectful for a child to ask their father for their inheritance before their father has died. It wasn't common practice. It wasn't totally unheard of, but it wasn't common practice. And in many ways, it was frowned upon to do this. You were considered selfish, immature, disrespectful to your father if you made this request. So everybody in the audience has already decided we don't like him. And most of them have decided we don't like the dad either because the dad gave him the money. Jewish writings of the time encouraged parents not to do this very thing. Mainly because you didn't know what the future might hold. You didn't know if you might need those resources for yourself. Don't divide it up among your kids. You don't even know what your estate is going to be at the time of your death. Don't give away everything too early because you might need that later in your life. So Jesus' audience, especially the religious leaders, have already decided we don't like the son for what he asked. And we don't like the father for the fact that he granted it to his son. But our Heavenly Father is very much like this Father. Our Heavenly Father will allow us to decide to leave if we want to leave. Our Heavenly Father who loves us, who wants us to be a part of His family, if we say to Him, I don't want to live in your house, I don't want to live under your rules, I want to make my own rules, I want to do my own thing, I want to live my own life, I don't want all of this religion as a part of my life, God, I don't need you, I've got it figured out, then our Father who loves us will give us the autonomy to walk away. And sometimes we think That because I was able to walk away and I'm not really experiencing any consequences, God must be okay with this. And that's not it at all. The Father was not okay with this. But the Father, out of His love for His Son, was willing to give His Son the freedom to decide the life that He wanted to live. The story continues in verse 13. Not long after that, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And everybody in the audience said, that's exactly why you don't give him the money. Because that's what he's going to do. He's not responsible. He's not going to make wise decisions. He's going to blow the whole thing. We could have told you how this story was going to end. In very short order, the son leaves spends everything he has, and then it gets worse. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, 
There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here's the thing. The the life that the son chose worked for a while. He had resources for a while. Nobody knew what he was doing for a while. He hid everything for a while. And then one day, everything became clear. One day, he wakes up and realizes, I wasn't really getting away with anything this whole time. And now I have nowhere to go. Here's the thing. When we spend our lives on the wrong pursuits, there will be nothing to sustain us when the bottom drops out. When we run and we run and we run and we make our own choices and make our own decisions and we, we don't listen to God and we don't honor the principles that God wants for our lives, eventually we land in a place where there's nothing to sustain us, emptiness. And it sounded so good at the beginning. It, it sounded like this is for me. I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to find everything that I've ever wanted if I just go this way. And then one day we wake up and we realize there's nothing there. There's nothing left. Not only that, Jesus, as the great storyteller that he was, positions the younger son in the the most despised position that he could. Remember the religious leaders are in the, are in the audience, keepers of the law, people who did not eat pork, did not touch pigs, believed that pigs were unclean, and so Jesus puts the son in the middle of a pig pen. Not only in the middle of a pig pen, but wanting to eat the same thing that the pigs are eating. Jesus has put this son in the most offensive place he could put the son. So so that when the religious leaders look at him, they despise him. They're disgusted by him. Quick question. What does that for you? What is the offensive thing to you that you just have trouble getting over? You have trouble believing that if somebody ended up there, I don't think they could ever come back. If somebody did this particular sin, if somebody was involved in this particular thing, I don't think there's any way for them to come back. What What is that for you? Who is that person for you? Because Jesus puts this son in that position on purpose. And then one day, The son decides, the servants at my father's house live better than I do. I'll go back, and I'll beg for forgiveness, and I won't ask my father if I can be a son. I'll just ask my father if I can be a servant. Can can I just live among the servants? And so he begins to make his way back home, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Not offense, not disgust. He was filled with compassion. 
He loved this son who walked away. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, and no one in the crowd can believe it. This is not at all how they expected the father to respond. They expected the father to say, well, here are the consequences for your behavior. To lay down the law. Well, you made these decisions. Now you have to live with them. You can't come back here. That's not what he does. He runs to his son, wraps his arms around him, and then the story gets more awkward. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, Jesus' point wasn't about sheep and it wasn't about a coin. Jesus' point to the audience that day was, There are people who are lost. There are people that are far from God. There are people that thought their life was working just fine and everything fell apart. What are we going to do for those people? Who's going to meet those people? Who's going to welcome those people? Because the heart of God is to find the lost and to bring them home. When the son got home, the father throws a party, and everyone celebrates, except for one person. There is an older brother who hears all of the commotion and the music and the noise, and he begins to ask, what's going on? And one of the servants says, your brother, the younger one, the one who left, the one who took the money and run, that one, he has come home, and your dad's throwing him a party, and the older brother was angry. And this is too much. His offense is too great. We should not be celebrating him. And so he confronts his father for being too compassionate. He confronts his father for being too forgiving. And his father says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the question at the end of the trilogy of stories is, where do you stand in these stories? Where are you in these stories? Because there's a couple of places you and I could be. Some of us, if we're honest... We have a little bit of the older brother in us. We have, a, we have maybe more than a little bit. We have the older brother in us because we've been in church a long time. And we know the rules and we know the songs and we come right and we've served and we've been here. We've done the right thing. We've been in the right place. We know the right answers. And there's a part of us that has a tension with somebody who's way out there getting to come home. Somebody who's really sinned getting to come home. Somebody who's really messed up getting to come home. 
See, the problem with the older brother is that over time, the heart just gets more calloused and less sensitive, more judgment and less grace, more harsh reaction and less brokenness over the lives of people who made decisions we didn't make, went places we didn't go, did things we've never done. But there is a father on the porch always looking for when they might come home. There is a father at the door, just like there was for many of you at some point in your past, when you came back, there was a father at the door ready to welcome them home. Some of us are like the older brother. Some of us perhaps are the seeker. Remember the first two stories, the, the shepherd sought the lost sheep, the shepherd sought the lost corn. The, uh, the heart of Jesus is to seek what's lost. He is doing that right now, with or without us. The Holy Spirit is seeking those that are far from God to bring them back into relationship with God. The, the, the Holy Spirit is seeking real live sinners out in the world who have lost their way, and He's wanting to bring them back home. And He invites us to be part of the search party. He invites us into the mission of not just finding the lost and noticing them and then walking by, but being part of bringing them back to the Father. He's entrusted to us, invited us into this kingdom agenda of finding those who are far from God and making sure they know you're welcome back here. You're welcome with the Father. The Father will forgive you. The Father's grace is enough for anything that you've done. The Father still loves you. And some of us this morning, we are the younger brother in a foreign land. Some of us this morning, we have decided, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make my own rules. Nobody can tell me what to do. I know who I am. I'm going to do my own thing. And we're running and running and running, and we're expending all of our resources, emotional and spiritual, maybe even physical, trying to prove that we know best. And we're going to wind up one day at the bottom with nothing to hold us up. That's why the Father is saying, come home. Recognizing that your way is not ultimately going to work because He created you and knows the life that He has for you. Here's the thing you have to realize if you're the younger brother in a foreign land. You can't stay in the foreign land and come home at the same time. The story is that the younger brother ran and ran and ran, and then he came to himself, some translations say. He woke up to reality, and he left where he was living and went back to where the father is. You can't stay in the foreign land and come home at the same time. 
I think sometimes we read stories like this, this one in particular, and we think, great, God is loving and gracious. I don't have to do anything. I can just keep being who I am, and God loves me, and everything's going to be fine, and God does love you. But you're not home until you leave sin. You're not home until you leave the foreign land and make your way back to the Father, until you leave the desires that pulled you away from the Father to begin with. Until you leave the impulses that pulled you away from the Father to begin with. And you come back to Him. All of us were that person at some point in our life. All of us were that person that recognized one day, I don't know the Father. I'm not in the Father's family. I haven't put my faith in Jesus. I haven't come back to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. And for many of us here, there was a moment we left the foreign land, we left our sin, we left our past, and we wanted to be home with the Father. And my guess is, even on a Labor Day weekend, There is somebody here today, and you need to do that. You need to stop running towards yourself. You need to stop running away from the God that loves you. You need to come to yourself. Turn around. It's what the Bible calls repentance. I'm not going to go this way anymore. I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to turn around and move towards the Father's grace and the Father's love. And there's somebody here that needs to do that. The coming into relationship with God isn't something that just happens because you attend church enough. Like you get enough credit hours and it just counts. It's not something that happens because your parents believed in God. Coming back to the Father is something that happens when you as an individual realize your own disobedience to God and your need for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection and you put all of your trust in Him. All of your trust in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And many have done that. But maybe there's, maybe there's just one person. Maybe there's two people. Maybe there's a couple of people. And today's the day for you to leave the foreign land and come back to your Father. Because He's waiting. He's not going to reject you. He's waiting to embrace you and to celebrate you. If you'll just come to Him today. Would you bow your heads for just a second? Close your eyes. And not think about anybody else right around you. Not not think about what anybody else is thinking or or anybody else is or what anybody else needs to do. What, What about you in this moment? Where where are you in the story? And if you've been running, if you've been hiding, if you've been pretending. If you've been covering up, your Father loves you. Your Heavenly Father loves you and wants you to come home. He wants you to receive the grace and forgiveness that comes only through Jesus who died for you. That's the extent of His love. He would die in your place so that you could have eternal life. Maybe you've thought, hey, I show up to church, that gets me in. Salvation is about a commitment to Jesus. 
Salvation is about turning from sin to the Savior who died and rose again for us. And if that hasn't happened in your life, let it be today. If you've been running and you know it, let it be today. You've been living in a foreign land, making your own rules. Let today be the day that you turn and come to your Father. You can just express it in your own words. You can just commit your life to Jesus right here and right now. We would love to talk to you after the service. I would love to pray for you and celebrate. Remember what Jesus said? Heaven celebrates when this happens. And if it's happened to you, we want to celebrate what God's doing in your life. You can indicate it on your, on your card. You can see me after the service. We want you to know Jesus and live eternally with Him. You see, in this story, you can be a seeker. You can be part of the seeking. You can be the one that's sought after. Jesus just doesn't want you sitting in the house doing nothing. Jesus doesn't want us just sitting in the house condemning everybody else who in our eyes got it wrong. There are lost that need to be found. God, thank you for stirring our hearts by a father who loved his son no matter the amount of mistakes his son had made. Thank you for reinforcing again and again that your spirit is seeking and seeking and calling and looking and desiring that all people would turn from their sin and come to you. And when that happens, all of heaven celebrates. I pray that today is that day for somebody. Today is the day someone gives their life to you. I pray that we who are followers of Jesus, we would be a part of your kingdom mission to seek the lost. That we would see every person around us as someone that the Father wants to put his love on. We would search and we would search and we would see people come to know Jesus. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.